Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's great to have Dr. Rex Young on the podcast. Dr. Young is an assistant professor of neurosurgery at the University of New Mexico and a clinical neuropsychologist in private practice in Albuquerque. Uh, I hope I said that right. Albuquerque, no, in, in Albuquerque, <laughs> New Mexico. A graduate of the University of New Mexico, he has practiced neuropsychology in Albuquerque since 2002. His clinical work now centers around intraoperative testing of patients undergoing a wake. Crenitomony. You know, this is the hardest biography to read ever. Awake <laughs> <laughs> design, yeah. Albuquerque, craniotomy. It just goes Awake down. craniotomy to remove tumors within eloquent brain tissue. Work with particular relevance to the study of individual differences, which we'll talk about. He's contributed to over 100 research articles across a wide range of disciplines involving both clinical and normal populations designed to assess brain behavior relationships. He's the editor of the Cambridge Handbook of the Neuroscience of Creativity, and his work has been featured on CNN, BBC, Nova, The New York Times, The Atlantic, and National Geographic. Is there anything that Dr. Rex Young can't do is the question. <laughs> great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Scott. It's great to talk to you. I've known you for quite some time, and even before you knew me, I knew you uh, <laughs> as I was working on my dissertation and citing your excellent work on the neuroscience of intelligence and the PFIT theory. But even like what predates that even that work? We'll get to all this. We'll get to the neuroscience of intelligence. We'll get to the neuroscience of creativity. We'll get to your craniotomy work. But can we start like when you were in grad school, what was your dissertation topic? My dissertation topic was biochemical correlates of intelligence. So I was doing work in intelligence even back in my graduate work. So yeah, I, I was doing stuff uh, with intelligence back then. My advisor, Ron Yo, was interested in individual differences. So I was very fortunate to be, you know, starting work in individual differences even back then, way back in the mid-1990s when, you know, before fMRI, before some modern neuroimaging techniques had even, had even hit, we were using a technique called magnetic resonance spectroscopy, uh, which looks wow. at bi brain biochemistry. So we were able to use that technique. That is so groundbreaking at the time. I mean, and also, was it controversial? You know, like there's this controversy surrounding the discussion of intelligence. So even if you just use the word intelligence, like if you say this, you study the science of intelligence, you don't even say what you study, people hate you already. And then, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like already off the bat, if you just say it, and then you say, but I study 
the neuroanatomy of intelligence. They like <laughs> they have a special room in hell for you. So, what was that like around that time? Because I hope it felt groundbreaking to you because it was. It, it did yeah. feel it did feel groundbreaking. It felt uh, different. I I had to argue with my. Uh, advisor at the time uh, to do this, you know, this study. And then the director of the center that I was working at uh, said, uh, you know, this is going to be a career ender for you. Um, you don't want to get into intelligence research. And so, you know, there was a lot of pushback, uh, in, even in the mid 90s to, to steer away from intelligence research, because it was, you know, it's always been controversial. And uh, it was uh, even controversial back then. And uh, people were trying to advise me to stick to you know, more traditional types of uh, research. <laughs> stick, to, stick to social psychology is what they meant to say. <laughs> well, I mean, I was, I was working in a lab where they were studying systemic lupus erythematosus. So there's another tongue twister. Oh, I see. A traumatic brain injury. So we were studying neurological diseases and they were really, you know, we were applying the spectroscopic technique and finding, you know, interesting biochemical correlates with neuropsychological measures of all these diseases. And I, I was asking, has anyone ever looked at normal brain functioning and uh, why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, we started to look at normal brain functioning and that's that kind of led to my career. And at what point did you intersect with the Richard Hire, is it? Yeah. And is it fair to say you're like co-creators of the PFIT model? Sure. Yeah. It's very, very fair to say that. So in 2004, I heard of a conference that was going to be held in Newport Beach, California. ISIR was holding a conference where Vivek Prabhakaran, who's a neurologist, Paul Thompson, who is a pretty famous neuroscientist these days, started Enigma, who, which looks at genetics and neuroimaging. Who else was there? Another famous neuroimaging uh, researcher who's at University of Michigan now, whose name escapes me. I think you studied with him. Um, but anyway. Uh, Jeremy pretty, Gray? Yeah, Jeremy Gray was there. He was there. my advisor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I knew you would know him, yeah. My graduate so, advisor, yeah. Yeah. So Jeremy Gray was there. I mean, and they were talking about neuroimaging of intelligence. And so I had this little spectroscopic study. And so I cold emailed Rich Hire and said, I, I think I should be presenting at this conference because I've done neuroimaging of intelligence. And so he invited me <laughs> to present with Jeremy Gray and Paul Thompson and Vivek Prabhakaran. And so I kind of invited myself to this conference and, and uh, off we went. That's an incredible backstory, like origin story. <laughs> that involved that somehow involved my advisor. So like, yeah, yep, yep. Jeremy Gray was there. I met him at that conference. That's incredible because I cited your work uh, quite a bit in my dissertation under his supervision. Yeah, cool. So there was a point at which you're talking to Richard, and it was like it became clear there was a great confluence of his findings from his lab and the findings from your lab, and as well as other labs, and kind of pointing to a particular truth about the neural correlates or structural and functional correlates of intelligence. Can you maybe tell our listeners who are not neuroscientists themselves as plain speak as possible, sort of what was the model, the PFIT model? How could they understand it? Well, the basic uh, idea was that there's a distributed pattern or, or distributed model of brain organization that underlies intelligence. The predominant model at the time, Jeremy Gray was um, a proponent of this uh, at the time, uh, was that the frontal lobes, our massive frontal lobes, were very important and perhaps central to intelligence. And what we kept finding, what my research certainly showed, was that the parietal lobes were very involved, the part, back parts of the brain were very involved in intelligence, and that this hmm. tended to lead to a distributed model of intelligence as opposed to the frontal lobes being uh, predominant. So uh, we first called this model the Einstein hypothesis because hmm. Einstein's uh, brain was remarkable uh, because of abnormalities in his parietal lobe. And so we really wanted to focus on parietal abnormalities. Hmm. Uh, the, the reviewers uh, roundly rejected that uh, because Einstein's only one individual and it, it's quite controversial about, you know, genius and, mm. and intelligence. And so then we arrived at the PFIT, parietal frontal integration theory, with P being predominant. The parietal comes first instead of the frontal lobes predominating. So I have a personal question. You know, you came to my one of my talks and 
I told you about how when I was younger, I didn't do wonderfully on IQ tests. <laughs> and uh, you're like, well, let me measure your brain. And in a way, didn't you confirm that I'm dumb? Like, didn't you find no, I have, you, no, no, you no. have you found that I have like a small frontal lobe though, right? So how do we reconcile this with the PFIT theory? <laughs> so I think the PFIT theory is interesting because there's a distributed model for uh, brain organization. And I think your brain, your wonderful brain, confirms this distributed model that you can have, you know, smaller structures in your frontal lobe, you can have smaller structures here and there. But that this distributed model, there's other parts of the brain that can uh, pick up the slack. So, Are you speak. just saying that to make me feel better about my – I mean <laughs> – No, no, no. Do you mean that? I, no, you, you, you did find – the one thing that you did find in me is a, a very, very, very thick corpus callosum, right? Correct. Right. So, so do you think you that know, like compensated for whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Different brain organizations can lead to the manifestation of intelligence, creativity. There's not one size fits all, but certainly across, you know, all of these studies, these 36 or something studies that we found, the parietal and frontal lobes predominated. And again, with intelligence studies, creativity studies, at the level of the individual, all bets are off. Mm. I mean, these are only averages across, you know, large groups of individuals. So at the level of an individual, and, you know, we can talk about awake craniotomies and individual uh, brains at some point, perhaps, you really have to look at the individual and how their brain is organized to manifest language, to manifest intelligence, to manifest creativity. And your wonderful brain manifests it slightly different than the average brain in our cohort. But of course, it gets the job done. So, I mean, obviously, I love that answer because I'm a bit not just because for my own ego, but also just I'm a big advocate for neurodiversity and the neurodiversity movement. And it is interesting. Like, you know, I looked at some of Goldstein's writings, his idea of self-actualization actually came about from looking at the amazing ability of the brain for other neural tissue to kind of take over things yeah. that had deficits. And Maslow co-opted that from Goldstein, the term self-actualization. Yeah. yeah, I always thought that was really interesting. And we rely on that in uh, these brain tumor patients. I mean, we're taking out, literally taking out parts of their brain. We rely on neuroplasticity for other parts of the brain to take up the slack and to take up some of the uh, cortical activities, memory uh, being predominant, some language tasks, although language is like less plastic, but memory being predominant that if you take someone's temporal lobe, uh, the other temporal lobe has to take up the, the activity and the work of the uh, temporal lobe that had a tumor in it. So we really rely on that neuroplasticity uh, very, very much in, in, in tumor work. I love that. And then it's also possible then to, for some of these brain areas to compensate, but also like contribute to intelligence proper. My IQ when I was tested with you was not as low as it was when I was a child. It, it was even, one could yeah. say, on a higher end of the spectrum, right? Oh, certainly, yeah. But isn't that interesting? Because when I was measured at age 11 and I had, I was suffering from this learning disability, you know, I was not in my best in that. So 20 many years later, these kind of brain areas can contribute to the development of intelligence across the lifespan. Well, and I don't know how, I think you had a central auditory processing disorder at the time and your hearing, you know, wasn't so great. And some of those things uh, were remediated over time as well. Um, So your brain was able to not only compensate, but have some correction, I guess, or help in those areas uh, along the way so that you could uh, develop. And and frankly, yeah, an IQ test uh, within that context is going to be an unfair measure of your uh, cognitive capacity. Um, whereas, you know, down the road, I think uh, even though an intelligence test may not capture your full cognitive capacity, and we can talk about that, it gets closer to a fair measure cognitive capacity than, than when you were a child. Oh, I w- gosh, I hope so. Now, the other thing, yeah. the other thing to mention, though, is the, you know, intelligence tests were designed to show children that needed more help, and certainly you needed help early on if you did have a central auditory processing uh, disorder. The fact that you were you know, held back for such a long period of time is an abomination. Um, you know, when, you, when you wanted to thrive and uh, excel and were looking for more environmental stimulus for your brain and you were being held back because of that early test well beyond the period when you should have is an abomination. Well, um, it certainly showed that you needed some help 
at that early point because your brain wasn't processing information fully. For sure. I certainly wish you were my school psychologist (laughs) instead of the one I had. But I also, you know, just saw greater possibilities for so many of my friends who were in special ed as well. And this idea of you're either learning disabled or you're gift, intellectually gifted seemed to me like a false dichotomy, even when I was a, a young kid. And, it is. and so you see that in the brain as well. You see cases where there's clearly, I don't like the word deficit, but you see some brain abnormalities, but you also see some extraordinary strengths in these individuals. Do you come sure. across this kind of stuff? Definitely. And I, so I was on the, I mean, just to, to, to kind of finish that point, I'm on the, the work, work committee for the ICD 11 uh, to create a new definition for intellectual disability. Hmm. And one of the goals of this uh, work group was to move beyond the use of IQ tests hmm. um, for the uh, definition of intellectual disability. Um, as you know, uh, this has relied intellectual disability, mental retardation. It used to be called intellectual disability. Now is has been almost entirely dependent on an IQ test. Yep. That does not give you any idea of how an individual can perform in their life. <laughs> and so this new definition advocates for particular neurocognitive measures, uh, executive functioning, working memory, language functioning beyond uh, that intellectual measure because you have to understand what these particular cognitive uh, capacities are in order to find out how well or what help a person needs at an individual level to succeed within their given environment. And so getting things like you know, impulsivity or executive functioning or language abilities beyond that mere IQ test is super important at the next uh, instantiation of the ICD-10 or ICD-11. I'm so glad that you, uh, well, I'm glad you're on the committee, but they should be grateful that you're on the committee as well, because you uh, offer a lot, a good, important perspective for that. Well, it's a neuropsychological perspective, which is beyond, you know, reifying IQ as the one measure that solves all problems and the one hammer that hits all nails. So. Right, right. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, and, and it's something else occurred to me when you um, were talking about how low IQ doesn't necessarily indicate that you will be dysfunctional in your life. But I would also say, if you've ever been to a Mensa meeting, having oh, an external, oh. having a, right, is it the other end also doesn't guarantee yeah. that. <laughs> right. I mean, just having a high IQ doesn't ensure that you're going to be successful either. Right. So, I mean, and Mensa is a, is a perfectly good example of that. You know, it's a, it's a nice club of people that do puzzles, but beyond that, it sounds extraordinarily boring to me. I've never been to a Mensa meeting, so perhaps I, I'm not a good uh, person to uh, judge. Well, I, I certainly don't want to be on record for uh, talking smack about Mensa because they gave me an award in 2012. And anyone who gives me an award is, right. you know, I love, I love them. But there was a, st- a scientifically published study recently uh, conducted on Mensa membership, a very, very high proportion of psychopathology among that population. Mm. And researchers like you know proposed that high iq might actually like be comorbid with psychopathology but it was literally just on mensa people a selected sample so it didn't seem to me like if they looked at the general population you would really find that if anything you find iq could be a protective factor right against it's usually a protective factor but it could i mean knowing your iq could create some expectations that if not met met could lead to increased anxiety, depression, things like that. So I could see, you know, it's a chicken or egg phenomenon. So if you if you happen to know your IQ and you know it's extremely high, and then you're not, you know, a CEO of a company or a professor or master of uh, whatever domain that you uh, are working in, then that might lead to increased anxiety or or psychopathology. And then also, I was a great point. First of all, great point. I love to do the yes and thing in improv. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. And on the flip side, you yeah. know, I'll say that growing up in special ed as a kid and, and thinking my IQ was low, having that narrative in my head. Yeah. And then, and then doing like succeeding academically yeah. created an imposter syndrome feeling. So yeah. I think on the other well, end. It's the club, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> why? Tell, oh, tell me your story. Really? 
Well, I don't know my IQ, but oh. uh, I mean, most most academics have some sort of imposter syndrome. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Well, thank you. I feel a great moment of connection there about that. Then I really felt like you know because I was getting learning pretty easily once I applied myself, and I realized I loved learning. I almost felt like, wait, am I allowed to be good at learning if my IQ is not above a certain threshold? Like, am I breaking the defying the laws of physics? You know. <laughs> <laughs> No, they just had you. They just had you. They just had you pegged wrong. It's so interesting to now be in this field and and reflect back on that. It puts us in a unique position to reflect on ourselves as psychologists. So I want to return real quick to the neuroplasticity thing. By the way, did you ever? This is a tangent, but are you a fan of comedy? Did you ever see Jiminy Glick show on Comedy Central in the nineties? I've seen bits and pieces of it. Yeah, with Martin Short. Yes, 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 yes. I, I almost felt like I was about to have a Jew. Like, no, let's talk about neuroplasticity. Jimmy <laughs> Glick moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, well, can we can we can we circle back to neuroplasticity? <laughs> Channel our gym, inner Jimmy Glick. Yes. So you know, you so you're actually catching this reference. Yes, I am. Yes, I oh, am. Oh, I love it. I took a risk because you know it's very obscure reference. Yeah. Although I look a little closer to Jiminy Glick than you do, Scott Gregoff. <laughs> well, that may be true. However, neither of us look anything like him, right. even if you are closer to him. Yeah. So, okay. So, you know, you, we were on the stage together at a 92Y event, and you made a comment that I just can't get – I have not been able to get out of my head since that one day of mm. the stage. We were talking – people on stage were talking about neuroplasticity, and you're like – yeah, but I think people go too far in talking about neuroplasticity. I don't think it's like as plastic as people are saying. Can you walk me back to that day, that comment, the context, and um, and let and and, and I, it just stood out in my head because I I'm a real truth seeker like you are, and and I when someone says something to me like that that makes me that kind of challenges a prevailing sort of uh, narrative or something like I listen to that person because it's I, I found it really interesting. Can you tell me what you're you're thinking about that was about neuroplasticity? Yeah. Do you remember really, that? Do you remember that, by the way? I do remember yeah. that because, yeah, I, and I tell it to my patients to this day because people talk about neuroplasticity kind of as if it's this magic elixir thing, you know, sprinkly thing that we can sprinkle on people and that it will kind of solve all the problems. And it can do a lot. Neuroplasticity is very important, but it, again, is not the hammer that hits all nails and it is not an infinite capacity. So there are limited things that uh, neuroplasticity can do and things that neuroplasticity cannot do. And uh, to use it in its generic term is a bit imprecise. For example, uh, vision, if we sever the major pathways, Myers loops that go through your parietal cortex into your occipital lobe, and leave you with what's called a homonymous hemianopsia that you cannot see out of the half of either of your eyes. That is a permanent thing. It's never coming back. It is not plastic. Vision has zero neuroplasticity in terms of uh, severing those tracks and damage to the occipital lobe. That Those are laid down so early in life that the plasticity of that is virtually zero. Same with, wow. uh, well, motor, motor functioning is not zero, but you can regain some function. But if you damage the primary motor cortex, the plasticity of the other cortex in your other hemisphere to take over that functioning of your contralateral part of your body is very small. Game over. Well, it's game minimal. Memory, as I was talking about, the plasticity of that is pretty good. We can expect if we take your left temporal lobe because there's a tumor in it or you have epilepsy and that's your seizure generator and there you have a sclerotic hippocampus and that has to go, we can expect your verbal memory if we take your left temporal lobe to reorganize mm -hmm. in your non-dominant hemisphere. Now, that being said, it's also going to crowd out some of your nonverbal memory because there is limited brain capacity. So for any plasticity to happen, you also have to ask what brain function is being crowded out. Hmm. 
for every gain, there is something that's being lost. For every environmental demand that your brain lays down neurons, there's also things that are going away because you do have a limited space between your ears and inside your skull with these neurons that are devoted to meeting environmental demands. And so neuroplasticity does happen up to a point, but it is not infinite. And it depends on what we're talking about. So just huh. to use neuroplasticity in a generic uh, sense for everything and anything doesn't make much sense to me. If you're talking about neuroplasticity of intelligence, well, we can talk about improving intelligence, which is an interesting conversation and studies have been done. Yeah, there's positive and negative uh, results uh, related to that. And does it regress back to the mean after a period of time? Is it near transfer or far transfer? All these types of things. Does it crowd out working memory? All these things. But that's you know something that is within the realm of neuroplasticity. So that's a very long-winded answer to your very pithy question. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I thought it was a great answer and, uh, and, and really something to think about. There was a best-selling book a couple years ago called The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Dodge, I think, or so. Have you read it? I have not read it. I read very few of these books. <laughs> well, maybe you should so, write one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's another topic. Yeah. Well, I think it's an important caveat. Something that, you know, the, the mind is not infinitely malleable. But, the, you know, the idea of neuroplasticity does capture the general public's, the public loves that stuff, you know, like... Oh, uh, it's very appealing. Very yeah. appealing that it can change our minds to change our brains is enormously appealing. But, you know, how much? Who knows? Is Are there genetic constraints? Who knows? Um, are there, you know, how much time do you want to spend to do that? You know, this famous Dragansky study that I cite in a lot of my talks where you learn to juggle for three months, three ball juggling, and you get a little blip of volume change in your right parietal occipital temporal uh, junction. Mm. That took three months of very concerted juggling mm. to where, you know, people who didn't know how to do that at all got a little half a centimeter of tissue volume change over that period of time. <laughs> and that's, that's neuroplasticity. But it's, it's very, very small amount of brain tissue that was noticed to be changed in that very concerted effort of three ball juggling. Yeah. So I had, you know, this connection between genetics and how it codes for the proteins that eventually build up to brain. And I had a chat on my podcast with Robert Pullman, who is this, obviously, as you know, behavioral geneticist. And we got in a little bit of a heated, respectful discussion because I felt like he was being a, a little bit too deterministic about it, about the situation. How he's like, we really like way, way overestimate the extent to which the environment impacts us at all. Like, we need to stop with this political correctness. You know, it's like, it's the genes. And I mean, if that is true, then I don't see a mechanism where like immediately genes like build the brain, <laughs> you know, like outside yeah. of any context. I just don't yeah. see a developmental mechanism where that could possibly be true. Yeah. yeah, I think, I mean, I'm very humble about this. I think our knowledge about this is very rudimentary. And I think our best estimate, the best starting point is 50-50. You know, 50% genes, 50% environment is probably our best uh, starting point for just about any complex human behavior. And So you're um, saying so it's a chance whether or not it'll be genes or environment? No, no. I say 50% I, genes. I know. And it also, was a bad joke. It was a bad joke. Well, yeah. yeah <laughs> it's a flip of a coin. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry. So, uh, and then also, though, genes only work through interaction with environment. So, you know, genes do not turn on and off in isolation. If you're kept in a dark room with no interaction with the environment, the genes aren't going to work. Um, so, you know, the, the complex gene environment interactions, we don't even pretend to understand uh, currently. So I just, mm. you know, I throw up my hands and say it's it's really too complex for us to take a, a really hard stand on this currently. And 5050 uh, sounds about right to me. And that's why you haven't written a best-selling book yet. Exactly. Because, I'm because not going <laughs> to be dogmatic about cause it. Because, like, he, I mean, Pullman, for most of his career, has been so careful and, uh, you know, he's done great scientific work. It has been very clear about the caveats. But then he writes his popular book and it's all the caveats go out the freaking window. And it's like, you know, like, I, maybe that's what happens when you, you know, 
write these. You write a book, you, you, you're, you're selling ideas. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Okay. So let's talk about creativity. Okay. Let's go into the world, the realm of creativity, because what I find so interesting is the realm of the intelligence, the neuroscience intelligence, that universe sometimes looks like the complete opposite universe than the universe of the neuroscience of creativity. Sometimes. Sometimes, although I like to say, well, sometimes I like to say tongue-in-cheek that every, everything that I say about this evil, bad, racist world of intelligence is sweetness and light when I go in front of a, of a group of creativity audience. <laughs> when you're talking about creativity, it's wonderful. All of these complex and hard issues of individual differences – and brain correlates are wonderful when you're talking about creativity instead of intelligence, even though you're talking about exactly the same issues. Intelligence has such a bad rap, but creativity immediately uh, gets a pass. So it's quite fascinating when I go to give a creativity talk and I'm talking about some of the exact same issues as intelligence, including genetic contributions. And people are much more comfortable talking about high genetic correlates or penetrance in a creative aspect as opposed to an intellectual aspect. It's, it's just fascinating. It is fascinating. Why do you think it is the case? Why do you think intelligence is such a loaded word? Is it the history of the intelligence testing and the uses that it, it was? Is. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a hard, it's a hard history to overcome. And, you know, we continue to struggle with that. But, um, you know, at some point, we do need to recognize that we're talking about these fundamental human attributes that are true across intelligence, creativity, personality, all aspects, aptitudes, all aspects of individual differences. And to take, it's hard, but to take a dispassionate look at it when we're looking at it scientifically. I know when looked at politically, and some of these things are political because intelligence tests are used in schools, for example, and they're used in in um, uh, some realms that have a political slant to them. Creativity tests are too. They're used for gifted and talented selection as well. So um, some of these same controversial issues apply to tests of creativity, but uh, again, get less baggage attached to them. So I think we... I don't know. I hope that we're doing better in 100 years that we can look at mm. science without such immediate tribalism, yeah. I guess, yeah. word, and not devolve to our camps. But uh, I mean, I, I've, I've tried to have these conversations, and you and I have had these wonderful conversations in a variety of venues with people that are hostile to intelligence and hostile to even creativity that I think we can just keep. Who's hostile to creativity? Well, some artists don't like talking about the creative process or like me talking about the creative process in such uh, scientific terms when it's so mysterious, for example. So, I don't know. That was a Jiminy, another Jiminy Glick moment. <laughs> Who's Who doesn't like it? <laughs> Who doesn't like it? You can always find someone hostile to your point of view. <laughs> yes, yes. This is true. This is actually a profound point. I'm going to write that quote down. I'm going to tweet that. Yes, yes. Find someone hostile to your point of view. Um, Rex Young. Okay. Rex Jung. Oh, yeah. Jung. Sorry. Now you're confusing me. I thought it was <laughs> Jung. Uh, so, no, when it's, when it's profound, it's Jung. Oh, I see it. When I'm quoting you. When I'm quoting exactly. you. Yeah. yeah. So creativity. Neuroscience of creativity. Now, you find – Whereas in the neuroscience of intelligence, mostly kind of this lateral prefrontal cortex is connecting there with the parietal lobe. But when you get into the realm of the neuroscience of creativity, it seems like your reviews of the literature show that more of the medial prefrontal regions, like uh, related to the, what's called the default mode network, play more of a role. Can you explain to the general public what in the world that means, what I just said? Yeah, it's, it's a little hard to explain, but the, the lateral parts of the brain are more involved in expression of behavior in the external world manifestation of behavior in the external world, doing things out in the world, whereas the medial parts of the brain are more involved in internal representations, thinking about things, thinking about your relationships, thinking about 
the past, thinking about the future, mental time travel. So mental simulations are involved in this default mode network. So it's a really important capacity that humans have to be able to simulate or try out ideas before you buy them in the external world. And I think that in terms of novelty generation, which is one half of the creativity definition, that novelty generation part is seems to be very involved in the neural networks that overlap with the default mode network or the medial parts of the brain. So I, to me, it seems like a beautiful architecture, tractoral design element, almost poetic that like the, the lateral you know, outside surface of the brain is more involved in your conscious perception of the outside world. Your medial default mode network, the inside of your brain is more functionally related to inner thought and imagination. I mean, that's kind of beautiful, isn't it? It is beautiful. The more you understand about the architecture of the brain, the more beauty you see in it, actually. Agreed. It's, real, it's really beautifully designed. The hands of God. Well, or something. Yeah, these, these uh, uh, evolution, God, uh, both these networks that we're starting to appreciate are really elegantly uh, designed, if you will, or organized, if you won't, that in such a way to create a interplay that allows us to survive allows us to solve problems, both long-term and short-term problems, and allows us to move back and forth between these worlds in very rapid sequence and in demand, in service of environmental demand. So it is really an elegant design that allows us to survive and has allowed us to survive and thrive uh, up to the present day. So I really see both intelligence and creativity and perhaps personality as really important survival tools that have persisted in our brain organization over time uh, that have led to both wonderful and horrible things, including, you know, the nuclear bomb and, uh, uh, and uh, the internet and uh, um, wonderful things, technology that will uh, allow us to survive hopefully into the next century. It's hmm. beautiful. Yeah, I'm glad that we could uh, share that, that moment of appreciation for brain organization. And Okay, so creativity, important for the future civilization. We're both agreed on that, right? <laughs> Absolutely. What about genius? What the hell is genius? Like you can talk about neuroscience intelligence, you can talk about neuroscience of creativity. Now, genius is is one of these phenomenons, like it's not just you're not just gonna understand it by looking at the neuroscience of it, right? Yeah, I think so genius I think is three things now. And my thinking has evolved over time. I think certainly it's the interplay of probably a high level of intelligence. Most, if not all, of our geniuses of the past arguably have had uh, high-ish uh, levels of intelligence. Too high could be perhaps problematic. We can talk about that. Mm. Certainly high levels of creativity are involved in the manifestation of genius. And then the third thing that is involved is um, some idea that really takes hold in society that is like a, a virus that overwhelms uh, mm -hmm. society in such a way that it is uh, really pushes society forward in some meaningful way. So uh, it has to be recognized uh, by society as something that really is of such novelty and utility that it pushes society forward in a very important way. Right. But you see that as, as the juxtaposition of intelligence and creativity and opportunity? Think, yeah. Intelligence, creativity, and opportunity, if you will, I guess that that's your word, but I accept it, that uh, there is the uh, opportunity or um, intersection of those talents with the society's recognition or the zeitgeist or the um, manifestation of an idea that um, is outrageously popular and takes yeah. off. Yeah. I've always been really fascinated with Dean Simonton's research on multiples. Yeah. And there's some, you know, there are cultural milos where some things are in the air. You know, certain yeah. ideas are kind of ripe for yeah, yeah. picking. 
yeah. um, doesn't mean that every brain is going to pick it, but a high likelihood that that if you have a certain threshold of expertise, at least, you know, you'll see that we need to do that. Yeah, that's what we need to do. Yeah. Right. And if Einstein hadn't uh, come up with the theory of relativity, it, it would have perhaps emerged uh, by now. It was certainly by now, but uh, in the next, uh, you know, 10 years after 1905 or whatever. Hmm. It's so funny. It's so weird to think about it. It was that long ago, 1905. Yeah. And just how little instruments we had to test his theories, that he had that imagination that had panned out to be correct. I mean, that's that's quite a thing to be able to imagine such a vast, infinite universe. <laughs> and have the time to do it. I mean, talk about opportunity. I mean, he was not burdened by uh, an academic career, if you will. Uh, he worked in a patent office. So he had the time to allow his imagination to roam uh, widely and uh, without the you know kind of burden, if uh, like I said, of, of having to uh, be a professor. Or be a woman and have to raise your, have childbirth and sure yeah but, many but, things that many yeah. things that would occupy your imagination or occupy your cognitive resources at yeah. the time yeah yeah so gosh there's so many ways we could go with that but i think that i want to make sure that we talk about awake craniometries <laughs> craniometries yes i did it i did it <laughs> yes i've been practicing it all in, in internally yes Wait, but, but actually, before we talk about it, I do want to just talk about Einstein for a second because I have a hypothesis that the kind of brain regions that enabled his superior reasoning was not the default mode network sort of social imagination. In fact, he might have even had a deficit in He's social – autistic, yeah. Exactly. Well, did it, I mean, it, so I'm thinking that it probably was his P-fit or his parietal lobe. He probably had an, his parietal lobe. And also, I will say, one thing that I have in common with Einstein is the corpus <laughs> corpus callosum uh, thickness. Yes, 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 yes. And curly hair. And <laughs> yeah, curly hair. Um, exactly. But yeah, it just dawns on me that I don't think that it was his like default mode network that was the key source of imagining what it'd be like being on a light beam. That's such a non-social thing to imagine. It's a non-social thing, but that is default mode activity. That that imagination, that imagination ability to put himself on that light beam and to was it was it or was it visual spatial imagination? Certainly visual spatial imagination, but I think it's still default mode. Really, it's mental simulation. It's mental time travel. I think I think it's uh, default mode activity. But don't you find the kind of mental time travel coming from the default mode network tends to have be things that are social in contact and content? It doesn't have to be social in contact. It can be social in contact. It doesn't have but to it be. Doesn't have to be social in contact. For people who are less social, the content will will differ. So I, I think the content depends on the type of person. It is an individual. I mean, you're looking at studies and we're all looking at studies that uh, involve, you know, normal undergraduates uh, who, who are um, social by nature <laughs> on the yeah. average. But I think if uh, the person, the individual is less social or perhaps on the spectrum, that the content of their imagination is going to be more with things as opposed to people. And those things are going to be things like uh, traveling on a light beam. Um, there's so many reasons why that's interesting because it's like, it's not like the brain activation is the causal thing. I mean, like it's a reflection of the overall system of the organism. But, sure, you know, to be able to say like, oh, the reason why Einstein is the way he was is because his brain was activated there. You know, it's like... We don't have the default mode of a bunch of Aspies. We should. That would be kind of cool. <laughs> right? Yeah. What would because the default mode of Aspies be? <laughs> yeah. I think it would be really... I, I think that study would be fascinating. It would probably be less social content as opposed to the, you know, weird people that we have, Western, educated, intelligent, rich, and democratic. And neurotypical, um, and neurotypical. And neurotypical uh, undergraduates. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that would be, we should definitely do that study. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. <laughs> that would be so cool. Okay, awake craniometry is the moment everyone's been waiting for. 
Awake craniotomies, we've studied over 100 individuals. I've done awake craniotomies with a neurosurgeon over 100 individuals and talk about individual differences. We open up the brain and do testing, neuropsychological testing, while a patient is awake and while the tumor is being removed. And we want to make sure that the motor cortex isn't hurt or language isn't hurt or visual spatial organization or math ability isn't hurt while a patient is awake. And we're starting to look at non-dominant hemisphere, which uh, you know, uh, neurosurgeons are not as interested in the quote quiet hemisphere or mm, yeah. not eloquent hemisphere, the right hemisphere. But we know that the that uh, uh, prosody and and uh, some creative aspects, uh, certainly nonverbal reasoning, uh, is organized in the right hemisphere. So uh, we have uh, uh, in collaboration with a musical. Uh, uh, professor, we're looking at uh, musical ability and non-dominant language ability in the right hemisphere oh, wow. during craniotomy as well. So uh, it's a fascinating procedure. People are at their most vulnerable. Um, people are at their um, mm. are extremely brave in uh, doing this uh, procedure to get the tumor out, and it's it's something that really is, I think, the culmination of my studies and in individual differences at the level of an individual. Holy cow. So they're awake. Yeah. I mean, that's credible. What does it feel like? Well, your head's numb. So it's kind of like going to the dentist and you get all your teeth numbed up. So you yeah. don't feel your yeah. teeth while they're drilling on it. So you can take your skull off and expose the brain. And then you put a little stimulator on the surface of the brain and you can temporarily shut off, um, kind of like flipping the the breakers on the back of the house, um, uh, different circuits um, while patients are talking and you can stop talking or you can have someone uh, involuntarily move their limb uh, by putting a stimulator on the surface of the brain and making the neurons work um, or making the neurons stop working by putting a small electrical current through them um, while the patient is awake. And you can see which neurons are critical for the performance of that activity is language, uh, for example, expressive language, receptive language, um, motor activity, uh, any uh, uh, activity that you can localize in the brain. Um, but we have to localize it in the individual brain because language is supposedly, as we learned in the textbook, you and I, Scott, that Broca's area is in the inferior frontal lobe um, and Wernicke's areas in the superior posterior temporal lobe. Not well, always the case, right? Not always yeah. the case. I yeah. mean, it depends. And you can have little nodes that are distributed uh, distributed around. Yeah. Um, in one patient, uh, reorganization had occurred due to epilepsy and um, hmm. kept stimulating and kept uh, taking out um, Broca's area. And we ended up resecting the entirety of Broca's area, but the patient kept talking, talking, talking. So we knew everything was fine. Broca's area was somewhere different. So interesting. And, and yet you wouldn't be able to tell just talking to the person. No. That like, no. oh, well, your Broca's area is... In no. Yeah. Or imaging them because the blood flow, you know, is a really gross measure. And we, we love all these fMRI studies, but we forget that they're about blood flow. They're not about neurons. Right. And so you get an estimate of the neurons that are underlying that work. But um, that's only an estimate, and so you really have to understand the actual neurons that are doing the work if you're gonna if you're gonna take them out. For sure. How many people uh, do weight craniometries around the world? I mean, it uh, is it a common practice? It is. It's been going on for the last hundred and well, about hundred years. Uh, uh, Penfield Wilder Penfield started doing these at the beginning of last century. And um, in uh, Canada, and um, every just about every state in a major medical center in the United States has a center mm. uh, to do awake craniotomies. New Mexico, uh, being one of the smaller states, did not have one until we started that here uh, more recently uh, in the last three years. And now we have a viable uh, center here. But uh, you have one uh, in. Uh, Pennsylvania, where you are, or and certainly New York has several uh, in the in the hospitals up there. Yeah, I don't trust uh, any sadistic neuroscientists playing around <laughs> with my oh, what, like a puppet, right? Like oh, with strings, a puppet with strings. What we could just you know take this area and and make him you know sing opera, you know. It it, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> <laughs> we can't make you sing opera. Whew. 
it's not like hypnosis, uh, like making you cluck like a chicken or something like that. Well, that's good. <laughs> but, uh, that's yeah. good. But it is it is fascinating to see uh, what ongoing uh, neural activities we can interrupt, uh, what neural activities we can excite, uh, mostly motor activity. And you can have sensory experiences um, by uh, stimulating the homunculus and identifying the face area or the mm. arm area or the leg area uh, by going, you know, right up the homunculus uh, of the sensory or motor cortex. So you can see exactly where things are just as uh, um, just as we see in the textbook. That is so amazing. Well, your whole career has spanned lots of really fascinating topics and I just thank you so much for the work you've contributed to the field, to my own research. And, and thanks for, you know, just your support of my, my work and my own quirkiness over the years. Continue to, Scott. <laughs> I'm really happy to reconnect with you and hope we can stay connected. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes and subscribe to the Psychology Podcast YouTube channel as we're really trying to increase our viewership on YouTube. In fact, many of these episodes are in video format on YouTube, so you'll definitely want to check out that channel. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.